Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about puzzle games, talking about having your players go through this, this experience of cracking codes and figuring out puzzles and trying to win the game, maybe in a certain amount of time, maybe not. We're talking to Rita Orlov of Post Curious. Rita, welcome to the show. Hi, Gabe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited to talk about uh, this kind of stuff. It just seems like the these kinds of games are just super popular and growing in popularity uh, every day. Seems like you know all these all sorts of people are going to escape rooms. They're playing the Unlock series and all sorts of really cool card games and board games coming out, and they're all over the place. Not just in the gaming world, but also just kind of in the world in general. You know, all sorts of people who aren't gamers are getting into these kinds of games, and so I'm excited to kind of hear your thoughts and ideas and the things you've run into as far as designing these types of games. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. Uh, well, my name is Rita Orlov. I'm the creator and designer of Post Curious, which I call an immersive tabletop puzzle game company. Um, I, I mean, I've been playing games for a really long time, but uh, what kind of got me designing games was that I worked for an escape room uh, for a couple years back when they first opened in the U.S., and I did some puzzle design for them. And after I left, I was still like super excited about puzzles. And I really wanted to design um, more games, but I didn't want to open an escape room. So I decided to make a tabletop game. Gotcha. Very, very cool. So you had the kind of the bigger, you know, game going on where people are actually in a giant room and trying to figure out these big puzzles. And then you kind of were able to, to scale that down into, you know, a box. And that's, that's really cool. I want to talk to you uh, more about that in a second. But I think the word you just mentioned is immersive. And I think that's that's a really cool idea and, and something I want to explore throughout this uh, this conversation. But before we kind of, and actually this kind of leads into my next question. Why, why design one of these games, right? So you said you kind of kept wanting to make the puzzles and all that, but like, give me, give me some more. Like why, why make one of these style of uh, games? Sure. Well, um, I mean, personally, I've just always been really drawn to puzzles ever since I first discovered puzzle games. Um, it was, it was always the kind of challenge that I really enjoyed and I found them really satisfying to solve. Um, so I think maybe it's that satisfaction that is part of what people like about it. Um, when it comes to things like escape rooms, I think part of it is also the entire experience. Yeah. And I mean, the word immersive kind of gets thrown around a lot lately. And I know that <laughs> it's sort of all over the place. But, um, you know, people are interested in having experiences that are away from their screen. And so they want to walk into a room and like open boxes and sort of feed a certain sense of curiosity about something that they don't know and, you know, overcoming challenges and then receiving rewards, um, satisfying that curiosity. Yeah, for sure. And now that, that actually is, seems like a really good definition for a puzzle game. Is that kind of what you would say are, are, are puzzle games in general? Mostly, I guess. I'm. I don't know. I don't know if if that can be a general 
blanket statement, but maybe maybe a good puzzle game does those things. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, actually, let's just define immersive. What would you say is what? Do you, what would you say immersive even means? Well, I would say that it is something that encapsulates you into its environment and its world. Um, so, I mean, just in terms of like immersive theater, you walk in and you're believing that you're now in a different reality and you can kind of forget what's outside. Um, and I guess the same with escape rooms, like you're not going to be checking your phone, you're going to be running around and trying to solve these things because you have to, you know, get out of the room in an hour before somebody comes in and, or like a bomb goes off. And that's just, that's like the reality that you're believing while you're in there, even though obviously that's not real. Um, but with my game, since it is a tabletop game, um, you know, you're not in a, in a different physical space, but what I tried to do was kind of blur the lines between the fantasy in the game and the reality um, because there are certain elements in the game which are online. So you have to like visit a website and email a couple of the characters at different points in the game. Um, and there are, you know, institutions in the game, like you're, you're getting this letter from, this institute and if you google it you can actually find the website and um, this isn't really a spoiler but in the first part of the game you're searching for some runestones and you might find that some of those actually exist in real life so it sort of blurs that line between what's just part of the game and what isn't um, I guess kind of in the way an ARG does which is <laughs> perhaps the ultimate immersive game yeah, I completely agree. I think the word, if I was going to, you know, kind of define immersive, the word verisimilitude comes to mind. This is a word I use a lot in my English class. And, and you know, believing something is real, whether or not it, it could be, whether or not it's fantasy or, you know, just kind of a made up scenario. But you kind of fully believe, at least for a moment, that this could be a real situation. And, and you get that, like, focus. And I think that's one thing, like, the rest of the world falls away. Like you're saying, you're not checking your phone. You're not worried about what time it is or, you know, what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're going to eat for dinner. You're so focused on the experience that you're having that everything else kind of falls away. And I feel like puzzle games have a really a great way of doing that, whether you're in an escape room and you're actually in this room, you're kind of uh, looking around and doing things, or you're just playing uh, one of these games, you get so kind of focused on the puzzle and there, there's timed aspects and all these things that you get like zoned in, so to speak. And I think that's a really uh, cool thing that this uh, genre of game has to offer and why so many people are, are drawn to them. And like you said, they, they get to feel smart. They get to feel like they accomplished something, like they they were clever and uh, people love feeling clever. And so I feel like this is a really cool avenue for, for games to take, but let's get into kind of the designing of these. What are some of the biggest design challenges you've run into in designing uh, puzzles in, in this style of game? Um, well, one of the biggest challenges is probably integrating story and puzzles in an organic mm -hmm. way, um, which I think like escape rooms also struggle with a lot because, you know, even though <laughs> like, let's say you're trying to escape from this murderer's house and why did he leave you all these clues in order for you to escape? <laughs> that was like, silly of him, wasn't it? It? <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but that's, that's kind of how it is with a lot of games. Um, and so trying to actually make the puzzles make sense in context um, and actually kind of, you know, use them to drive the story forward rather than just having sort of puzzles for puzzle's sake. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably one of the 
hardest things um yeah. in terms of well in terms of making them uh there's also challenges in you know people like to have physical tangible objects um but it's it's definitely difficult to incorporate those um in terms of you know fabrication and customization and things like that yeah, for sure. And that definitely plays a, a huge role when you're talking about a board game because now you have to have this thing printed and every component you add adds an extra cost and makes the final product cost more and barriers to entry and all that. Do you have any like favorite examples of, of maybe escape rooms or other games, or even your own games, uh, of kind of a game that really combined the narrative and the puzzles really well? Like, do you have anything that kind of sticks out and you're like, yeah, this game did it really well? Like even some of the, the big escape room, like escape room games that you designed back in the day, did any of those have cool like narrative stuff going on? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's any game that really does that perfectly. But I mean, I personally don't even necessarily mind it if it doesn't 100% make sense. Um, Mm -hmm. As long as it sort of feels organic within the game. And I mean, it's it is nice when the solutions to puzzles can actually drive the story forward. So if it does that, then I think it is in many degrees successful. Um, I can't think of any, I can't really think of any tabletop game, unfortunately, that like really stands out in my mind in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely played some really wonderful escape rooms, um, especially a few that I did in Europe. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, um, there's one in Prague that I played and it's a haunted house theme and it was, you know, it had a ghost in the house that was trying to communicate with us because it needed its, you know, spirit to be put at rest. And so it would communicate with us through things like, you know, dropping a photo from the wall or, you know, using a coin around a Ouija board to spell something out. And so that that was actually a very immersive game um, in which everything actually made sense also. Right. And that sounds really cool. Like that's something I, I like. I want to go there and do that just to kind of check out and how uh, see how they did it. And maybe maybe adding a little bit of fantasy is the way to, to, way to do, the way to do that, right? So if you go into an escape room design, you know, trying to make one of these games, and you think, okay, everything's going to be super real, it's like just like the real world. That's probably going to actually make it a little bit harder to make the story make sense because in the real world, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't work that way. That maybe is quite as immersive, or you know, would make sense in the game for you know something to. T- why would it? Why would it be a puzzle? Like wh- like you're saying, why would the murder leave you these things? Unless he's some like crazy psychopath, which I guess does happen. If you, you know, if you think about like the Zodiac killer and some other things. That have happened in the past with you know people leaving notes and encrypted messages, you know, really wanting to get caught. You know, it's kind of being like a cat and mouse game, and they're you know seeing if the investigators can figure it out, almost like a you know real life Sherlock Holmes Moriarty situation. But in general, you know, real life's not like that. And so, like, what would you say as far as like adding kind of fantastical elements? Or, and I think like your game, it doesn't have uh, like Norse mythology kind of stuff woven in. Like, like tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree. I think adding some kind of element of fantasy, not only, I mean, I think it makes things more exciting, but it definitely makes it easier to sort of fit puzzles in there. Um, Yeah, my game uh, centers around Norse mythology. And while I don't want to give away too much about the story, but um, basically you start out thinking that you're looking for these missing professors, 
Um, but it turns out that they've been kind of doing research into these runes, which actually have a kind of, you know, mystical past that's related to the Norse gods. And so mm-hmm. you're, the, the mystery actually turns into something much bigger and more magical that way. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Moving on to the next design challenge, you alluded to this uh, a moment ago, but let's talk about components. What are some things you've run into as far as challenges in adding components uh, to the game, either from a manufacturing side of things or a cost side of things, or just, you know, like not even just not being able to turn an idea into a physical thing. Tell me about that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's really nice to have physical components and people really like them. But I mean, they're they're hard to make, but also they're really hard to make domestically. Um, I mean, it even it, it is expensive, but even apart from the cost, like if you want to make something really custom, it's actually just really hard to find anybody to make it. Um, so <laughs> I've like sent out so many emails and made so many phone calls, like trying to find these different components and it's it's strange that you can't make a lot of things in the united states Hmm. does Um, everybody just tell you to go to china well they didn't they just they mostly didn't understand what i wanted (laughs) (laughs) actually like um i so one of the components in the game is a keychain with a set of keys on it and they're like actual Mm -hmm. keys um and so i was talking to a guy and i was like I need you to cut these and I need them all the same and I need 500. <laughs> he was like, I don't, <laughs> what? <laughs> they just like didn't get it. And I was like, it's for a game. And that mm-hmm. did not help clarify it for them. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was like, I found this one place after searching for like a month. Um, but I think, I think it is that you probably could get these things down in China, but um you also they also have much higher minimums and i was only making 500 copies of this game so it ended up being i mean i ended up just having to do a lot of things myself um which you know i i kind of enjoy because i have like an art and crafting background so i i do enjoy doing things with my hands but it is incredibly time consuming (laughs) Yeah. So basically you just went down to the Home Depot and did 500 keys at the little kiosk and just stood there for like seven days. Oh God. Um, I did, (laughs) I did find a guy to make my keys, which I was very (laughs) thankful for because Home Depot. (laughs) It'll take a while. Yeah. Home Depot and I don't have a good relationship. Oh man. The thing about Home Depot is no matter how thorough your, your list is, you always forget at least one thing and you always have to go back. It's just something about I don't know about Lowe's and the Home Depot. Every project I've ever done, it's like crap. I got to go back to the Home Depot and and get something else. I don't know. It's, it's something about the, the the air in their their system in there. It makes, it makes you forgetful, so you have to come back and buy more stuff. Well, when you're doing things, it's also like you could just forget to get that one screw <laughs> that you needed, and you know any any tiny component could like affect an entire project. All right, so let's talk about the digital side of things. You mentioned that you're your game, you have to email people and there's like a digital electronic side of things. And I've seen lots of these kinds of games use apps and uh, other things that use the internet and all that. So tell me about the design challenges as far as the digital side. 
Yeah, um, it's well, <laughs> it was hard to find something reliable to use for the email thing, which I'm still not totally satisfied with, but it works. Um, I'm hoping for the next game to kind of set up like a more, I mean, have somebody like program something for me so that it'll be a little more reliable. Um, and then there's some other components uh, which are online and like required some degree of programming, which I also tried to do myself, but after a lot of hours of trying to learn JavaScript, eventually gave up and um, had somebody else code those. But um, I mean, most. So you're of saying the, it's not just you waiting on emails to come in so you can reply back with the, the answer? I would never be able to be fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I wish I could have like uh, some kind of magical AI person doing that. But for, for this one, I ended up keeping it kind of simple. And I mean, it's also my first full game that I've done. So it's it's already like actually a pretty complicated game to produce. So I was at least trying to sort of keep things a little more simple where I could. Now, do you use like QR codes or anything like that? Um, yeah, there is a couple points in which QR codes are used. Okay, cool. And so people like, do you have like a devoted website, I guess, for this stuff for people to kind of, you know, they plug in the code, they go to these different websites to see different pictures or, or data? Oh, um, well, yeah, so there's there's the website of the Institute, which is for the people that you're communicating with. So there's a bunch of stuff on there. Um, and then there's also a website that you have to figure out, like the URL to as you go through the game. And there are some things on there. All right, so let's talk about difficulty. I feel like this would be one of the biggest design challenges in, in getting the difficulty right so the game's not too easy, it's not too hard, but finding that place in the middle and then you kind of have to, you know, do things based on, well, not everybody knows certain things. And so you kind of have to uh, mitigate for a lot of this stuff. Tell me about the challenges as far as making the game just the right difficulty. Yeah, I actually just wrote about that recently. Um, so difficulty is definitely a tricky thing to balance. And I mean, a big part of it is also your audience. And I specifically wanted to, I'm, I wanted to make a pretty challenging game, but one that was still approachable to people who weren't like super hardcore puzzlers. Mm. Um, because the, the games, well, so I started this quite a long time ago before there were, this many games that are out now and when I was just starting out I had tried a couple similar things and they either felt like so easy that it just wasn't really satisfying or it was so mind-numbingly difficult that I was like shocked that that was actually the solution mm -hmm. um, and my philosophy is pretty much that like it's even if something is too hard that you can't solve it, if the solution makes sense um, after you know what it is, then that is still like a good and viable puzzle. Yeah. Um, but basically it's it part of part of difficulty is just like the amount of information that you give a person. Yeah. So if you're thinking about like a Sudoku puzzle, 
um, like an easy Sudoku versus a difficult Sudoku, it's exactly the same thing, but the difficult one just has less numbers in it. Right. So it's, you're just obscuring more of the information. Um, and I never design puzzles that require outside knowledge. So, I mean, things like trivia or history or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're, like I said, there are like things that you need to Google in this game, but there are things that nobody probably would know anyway. Right. Um, and otherwise, it's just like, you know, it's sort of logic and reasoning and like deducing patterns and things like that. So it's not, it's not anything that you could just know or not know. Basically, how I gauge difficulty is through playtesting. So if too many people are getting stuck on one thing, then I know that that's something that needs to be changed. And often it's, you know, things will confuse somebody and I totally understand why it's confusing them. So I can pretty much make that adjustment right away and even be like, well, what if I put a line right here? Does that make more sense? Mm-hmm. And sometimes even that makes a difference because a lot of a lot of it when it comes to puzzles is just like presentation. Mm-hmm. So you could really be looking at the same picture, but if it's drawn in a slightly different way, it might, you know, lead somebody in the wrong direction. Um, so it's a lot of kind of little details like that. Um, but basically, if if most people can solve it then I know that it's solvable. And if some people get stuck on it, that's kind of okay because that's what hints are for. And I don't necessarily want people to be able to solve everything super quickly because if you see something and you immediately know exactly what to do, that kind of takes away the satisfaction of solving it. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, like we talked about earlier, one of the main reasons you play these games is to feel smart. And if you just know everything, it's like, well, this game was easy and it's, it's not as satisfying. It's not as enjoyable. You don't get to feel as clever as you do if, uh, you know, when you're spending 10 or 15 minutes trying to crack the code, trying to put all the clues in the right place, and then you get it. It's like this really cool high five moment. And that's really what people are seeking. You know, get those endorphins going in your brain to feel, feel good about yourself. And so follow up to the difficulty thing. I feel like these games can, can oftentimes struggle with time. Right. And I know with like escape rooms, it's easy. It's like you've got 60 minutes and then we're kicking you out and the next group's coming in and that's just the way this business works. But like if you've got games that you're, you're doing at home right out of the box, you know, sometimes they, they overstay their welcome. Sometimes they're too easy. So you're, you're done in 20 minutes. It's like, well, I just paid the, you know this amount of money and a 15 minute, you know, 20 minute ex- experience. And so like, what are some things you found in your, in your designing of these games that can kind of get the time to where you want it? Yeah, well, that really, that mostly was just determined through playtesting because there were, there were, I mean, first of all, my first version of the game was way too hard because I, you know, it's, it's hard to think outside of your own head when you're doing it because you can't, you can't playtest your own game when you're making a puzzle game. So there's no, like, I mean, I can tech, I can test if a mechanic works, um, but I already know everything about it. So when somebody's looking at it with fresh eyes and they're like, what am I looking at? Um, you know, and then you realize that you need to put a lot more clues in there to yeah. allow them to make sense of it. But um, so it's, 
yeah, it's hard to tell how long something is going to take until people try to solve it. And the other thing is that it can also take, sometimes it takes one person 10 minutes and it takes another person half an hour to solve the same thing. And it's not necessarily because they know something that the other person doesn't. It's just like they might notice something different about it or they might have a different set of skills. Um, Like some people have a lot more difficulty solving like, three-dimensional puzzles uh, because they're just not really used to thinking that way um, so it's it's really just testing and it actually ended up being that most of the people who tested my game took almost about the same amount of time mm-hmm. so at that point it was more of a matter of how many people are playing like if you're if you're gonna be playing the game by yourself it's gonna take you a lot longer but that's really just because there's a lot of content and there's just no way to get through it as quickly as you do with three or four people if you're just one person. Gotcha. All right, let's talk about clues. What goes into making a really good clue? I would say a good clue is something that gives you enough signposting to point you in the right direction. Um, It's trying to guide you, but it doesn't give away the entire puzzle. Gotcha. Now, as far as like giving out the clues, do you do you tend to design kind of more on a linear scale, you know, where, where people find clue A, then B, and then C? Or do you kind of design where, okay, you could find A first, and then F, and then C, and then you kind of take these clues and put them all together? Or like, what, what's your process look like? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm a big believer in nonlinear games. Hmm. Um, and I mean, a puzzle in itself might be linear like it'll have like it might have layers where you have to find one thing to then find another thing and then get the solution um but i usually design it so that there are multiple puzzles that can be solved at the same time so and and part of that is because if you're playing with more than one person you're probably going to want to be solving more than one thing at the same time right um, so I don't, I don't want to make it so linear so that everybody is like crowded around one piece of paper. And this is a problem in some escape rooms that are too linear where you're putting six people in a room, but there's only one puzzle to do at a time. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, four people standing around and they're not able to do anything. So that's just a lot less fun. But also I think it's I think nonlinear is nice because it allows you to work on something and if you get stuck on it you can like walk away for a little bit right. and try something else and you know you can work on another puzzle and I think it's often illuminating in a way that then you can go back to the thing you were stuck on before and then maybe you see it through a slightly different lens and you might even understand it better than you did before just from you know putting it down and trying something else for a while yeah for sure and my next question actually you you basically just answered it was going to be about downtime because that's that's what a lot of these games struggle with and like you're saying if there's only one puzzle to be solved and you're not by yourself well somebody's just going to be sitting there more likely kind of watching you do it or watch you know watching that one person try to crack the code and so yeah by having multiple things multiple clues multiple puzzles you can do it at the same time uh, you you eliminate that that downtime but any other thoughts on downtime? Like, is downtime a good thing? You know, it lets people just kind of sit there and like ponder for a minute and, and try to think through things or give me your thoughts on downtime with these games. 
Well, I mean, if you really want to have downtime, like no one's preventing you from having it. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it needs to be like programmed in. Um, and it'll probably happen organically at some point anyway. Like if you're, I mean, if you're like at the end of the game and you only have like two clues left to solve, then everyone's just going to be doing that together. Um, so I don't, I don't think you necessarily need kind of like planned intermissions in between, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. All right. So let's move on to a good hint system. So we've been talking about clues, but there are going to be times where players just cannot figure it out. And so what, what have you done? What have you learned in designing a good hint system for the players to actually be able to move on to the next thing and not just get stuck on that one spot? Yeah. So I love good hint systems and I very rarely encounter them. And so when I was designing this game, I was like very determined to make a really like user-friendly and robust hint system. And I mean, I basically went about it by just thinking what kind of hint system would I want to have and what are the frustrations that I've had with other hint systems that I've encountered. Um, the biggest frustration is not having any hint system at all, which a surprising number of games <laughs> yeah. do. Just good luck. You know, um, their, their system is, you know, have fun, good luck. <laughs> Hope you figure it out. Yeah, I mean, if it's like a super easy game that no one that no one fails, then like I guess okay. But probably somebody will get stuck on something, and if you really get stuck on it and you can't move forward, then you're just going to put the game down and you're never going to play it again. And what's the point in doing that? Because you made the game so that people would have fun playing it. So if they're just going to put it down, you're not really accomplishing what you set out to do. Um, And there's, yeah, I mean, I, I have at least one thing I can think of that I at some point just got so frustrated that I put it down and, I haven't picked it back up, which is kind of a shame because I would love to finish it, but I just really don't know how. Um, and there's also, I've encountered some things that like rely on using online forums and like, I guess, community hint mm-hmm. giving, um, which I think some people like, but I think they can be kind of problematic because at least I really don't want to see spoilers when I'm trying to solve puzzles and I think it's hard to kind of keep those things under control where you're like scrolling through a forum where a bunch of people wrote stuff and you don't know if they're like ahead of you or not. And, you know, people just write spoilers all over the place. And the other thing is there are some hints that, like give too much away at once Mm -hmm. um so especially if it's like a multi-step puzzle and you're only gonna have like two hints for it and then it basically just gives you the solution that kind of robs you of all the satisfaction of solving it so basically what i ended up doing was making a page um on the website and the page has basically labeled chunks of hints for every puzzle in every package. Um, I mean, every package has its own page. And so you can go to the page and it'll say, like, you know, business card. And if you need a hint with the business card, then that's the section you go to. 
and it'll have you know anywhere from like five to I don't know twelve hints or something like that, depending on how long the puzzle is. But they're super incremental, so they're really just giving you little little nudges along the way. So sometimes, you know, people are kind of getting what they need to do, but they're just not looking at the right thing. So it could be just something as simple as like, oh, have you looked at this paper? And then once they do that, that they might figure it out. Um, and so those, so the early hints are kind of just like asking you questions and like giving you a little nudge. And then after that, it gets a little bit more explicit. So certain things that if certain things are kind of multi-step, um, there are things you might want to kind of check yourself on on the way. So I've included things like that where like there's one puzzle where you need to find a bunch of cities, but that's not the final solution. So at some point, like in the later hints, it might say like, here, verify that you have found the correct thing. Um, and so that at that point, like if you haven't found the right thing, then you can go back and fix the thing that you didn't do rather than, and then you can continue it. So you still get the satisfaction of solving it, even though like maybe you made a mistake, you have the opportunity to correct it and still finish it kind of on your own terms instead of just being given the solution. Um, and I also have boxes for a solution check which, I mean, I have solutions on there too. So if you really want to click on the solution, you can. But that's also, like, if you think you have it, but it's not right, and then you see it, that's also a spoiler. So right. I added these boxes so you can basically type in what you think is the solution, and it'll tell you whether it's right or not. Yeah, very cool. No, that sounds really awesome. And I, I also see why a lot of games don't have hint systems because this takes a lot of extra work. There's a lot of extra uh, time that goes into putting one of these things together. Am I right? Well, you know what? It takes some time, but it's necessary. Oh, yeah, I agree. It's totally <laughs> like, worth it. <laughs> it I, don't, I don't think it, it doesn't take so much time. Like, I don't think time is an excuse for not making it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, because it's, it's honestly not that hard. And especially with like tools that you have today. I mean, it's not like I coded this website from scratch. Yeah. Like I basically, like I did a little bit of JavaScript on it, but like it's it's all very doable with tools that are super easily accessible. Um, and yeah, and the other thing is, um, yeah, and also some hint systems like don't have the solution which I think is also crazy because they'll give you these hints and it'll get you really close to the edge. But sometimes if you still don't get it and you don't have the solution, you can't move on from there. Right. And that's just insanely frustrating. So <laughs> that's why I have those. Yeah, no doubt. All right. A moment ago, you mentioned that your game comes in packages. And so I know that your game, you have two options and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you can either get the game all at once or like in a monthly package at a time system. And so tell me why you chose to do it that way and like what were some of the challenges with, with that kind of a system? So actually, um, I started doing it as a monthly thing mm -hmm. um, 
sort of based on like there are like mystery subscriptions you can get. Yeah, it's almost like a loot box the, kind of model, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I started doing it that way, but it is. But since this game isn't really a subscription, like it is finite. There's only four parts, mm -hmm. so it's not like you could subscribe and just like indefinitely keep getting packages. Right. Um, I ended up actually phasing that out, and now I just send them all in one box. And part of the reason for that was, I mean, honestly, I think it makes sense because it's really like one complete game, um, even though it sort of has these little chapters. It's not, um, it's not like episodic in that like this month we're you know, our theme is pirates and right. like next month we're in China. Um, so it's, it is continuous. And also there were a lot of people who were just asking me if they can have them all at once. And there's no really, there's not really any reason why not. Um, of course, it's also a lot easier for me because I don't have to send them out every month. Um, so that's kind of a bonus. <laughs> Uh, added on perk of that but I, I do think it's I do think it's also kind of nice to just have all of them in hand at once right and then because then you can decide on your own terms if you want to do you know everything in one night or maybe you want to wait a week at a time with your gaming group or something like that or you want to kind of uh, postpone it for other reasons it gives the uh, the players the option as opposed to just having to wait right yeah exactly and i mean part of it is like i mean there were some people who were like i'm waiting to get the entire thing before i start and I was like, why didn't you just ask me to send it to you? <laughs> but, um, but then, you know, there's also, you might do it and then you get the next package a month later and you kind of forgot a bunch of the stuff from before. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, you know, it's not like there's that much information to remember, but it's, it's easy to kind of like lose track of mm -hmm. what you were doing or like get lost in the story. Right. All right, cool. Well, let's move on into talking about how do you stay fresh, right? There's so many of these escape room, you know, businesses now. There's so many escape room in a box, you know, games and card games and stuff like that. How do you keep your puzzles fresh so that when players see them, they're like, oh, yeah, I did this. And, you know, this other game I played this is the exact same thing, just with different numbers or different theme. Like, what do you how do you how do you stay on point with your your games and puzzles? Yeah, that's actually probably the biggest challenge really in designing puzzles, because there, you know, once you do it, you know the solution. And so you don't really want to play the same thing again if you've already seen it. Um, the way that I try to design things is, like, I don't necessarily start with the puzzle mechanic first. Um, I kind of try to find inspiration based on the thing that I'm working in, like, in terms of either like the theme or the aesthetic or the location and things like that. So, um, you know, like in this game, I had this Norse mythology theme. And so when I was doing research on like Norse designs and things like that, I found all these different knots that they had, which are, you know, pretty similar to Celtic knots. But so I was thinking about these designs and how can I turn those into a puzzle and incorporate those incorporate the aesthetic and like the culture and things that you would see 
in this story and in this theme and make those into puzzles rather than like trying to think of puzzles and then pushing them into the theme. Um, and I, it took, it takes me a really long time to design things mostly because I try not to do things that I've already seen before. Mm -hmm. Like there are, I'll literally just think about things for a while and then I'm like, no, that's boring. Don't do that. And <laughs> then I'll just try to think of something else. So it, it, I always wanted to at least be like some kind of twist on something. If it's, if it's like similar to something I've seen, I never wanted to be the mm. same. So there's no, there's not really any clear cut answer to that. It's, it's a lot of time yeah. really of just, you know, kind of sitting there and being like, be creative. <laughs> well, I feel like you also have to play a lot of these games just to know what other people have already done. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to play pretty much most things that I can get my hands on. Um, I mean, partially just because it's fun to play them, but I, I do like to know what else is out there and, you know, I don't, I don't want to do the same things that are already out there, uh, which is also kind of how I ended up with the story because I didn't really want to do like a murder mystery mm. theme. So I ended up doing something kind of weirder and more fantastical. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's move into something we've already talked about a little bit. I just want to go in deeper. Let's talk about playtesting. What were the things that you ran into, design challenges and whatnot, as far as playtesting this style of game? Well, the obvious challenge in playtesting is that any person can only playtest your game <laughs> once. Right. You'd have a bigger pool <laughs> of people to, to play it. So, yeah, and it's so that's like <laughs> challenge number one. But um, this, I mean, this particular game is also really long and it's sequential. So, like, every package is like three to four hours. And so the total game is like, somewhere between 12 to 16 hours and I had to ask people to like commit to doing that and I had a lot of people who were like super excited about it and wanted to play it and then they would either start it or just not even start it but just like I would give it to them and two weeks later I'd be like hey how's it going and <laughs> they they just totally flaked out on me um, but I, I mean, I was lucky to have a, a few people who did finish it. Um, and closer to the end of the playtesting process, when I was like refining things more, um, I ended up getting a couple groups of friends to, well, they agreed to, um, allow me to watch them play, uh, which was really the most helpful thing. And I wish I had done that earlier. And for my next game, I'm definitely going to try to do that more because that was super illuminating. And being able to, you know, when when you do blind playtesting and people give you feedback later, you get so much less detail yeah. than you would from watching them play and like seeing exactly where they get stuck or like, what reaction do they have to a certain thing? And of course you can also be like, oh, is this confusing? Why is this confusing? 
and they can answer you. But like if they're if they're filling out your questionnaire the next day, they're not going to remember all the tiny minutia. And I really care about the tiny minutia. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like being able to observe that was really, really helpful. Right. Employers are notorious for forgetting important things, right? In their feedback. And that's one of the reasons I, I like to film. Uh, if not, if I can't fill in the game, like you're talking about, it's just to film the feedback, right? Because people have a hard time when they're writing stuff down. I don't like written forms very much because uh, people, they, they, most people don't like to write in general. And so they, they tend to leave things out. But if you can kind of get the camera on people, it, it goes much further in, in your playtesting uh, data and, and things like that. And so uh, wh- what have you done as far as like finding more playtesters? Any any kind of tips and tricks on, you know, getting more people to the table? Well, I mean, I started out by just kind of branching out to, well, first I started out with people that I knew. Um, I then asked from some acquaintances if they knew other people that would want to playtest because they also like puzzles. And that was actually what got me my best playtesters. And by best, I mean most helpful. But <laughs> like one of them did it blindly, but he wrote down every single detail of what he was mm-hmm. doing and what he was thinking while he was solving every puzzle, which was the greatest thing. Um, but I think, um, so I didn't really end up doing as many playtests on this game as I would have liked, but they were. Like, I feel like they were very, um, like I made a lot of edits incrementally and I think they were ultimately useful enough that it was still fine. Um, But in the future, um, I think, you know, reaching out to just like people online or people on Facebook, like escape room communities and um, puzzle game communities and um, somebody also suggested, you know, just going to like a puzzled pint event. I don't know if you know about it, but it's like a monthly thing where people go to a bar and it happens in like a bunch of different cities and people just go to this bar and like solve puzzles in groups. Mm-hmm. And so just go to one of those events and just ask people if they want to play test. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And speaking of the the pint, you know, puzzle and pint thing, nothing makes a puzzle more interesting than adding alcohol to the scenario, right? And just go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, this escape room gets harder the longer that people drink. And like, yeah, well, that's kind of the way things go. <laughs> yeah, do your game masters a favor. Don't go to escape rooms drunk. <laughs> it's really not fun for them. <laughs> As somebody who has watched many, many drunk people yeah. play oh, escape man, rooms. I can't imagine. All right, so where do you go from here? So you've designed, you know, one, and like you said, this is a pretty big experience, right? There's, it's not like these other little, you know, $15 games that take, you know, take 30 minutes and you're done and, and that's it. Like your game is immersive. It's deep. It's long. It's got a lot of stuff going on, but where do you go now? Like what are, what kind of projects are you working on? So right now I'm working on the next, uh, post curious game, which is going to be a pretty similar format. Um, but it's not going to be like a continuation of this mm-hmm. story or anything. And um, it's going to be a little bit shorter, but it's also going to be in packages. So similar in that way. Um, And I'm also thinking about some other projects at the same time. Um, One of the things I'm working on is an outdoor game um, with collab in collaboration with 
Crux Club, uh, which is a company in New York. Um, they have they have one game out so far um, in which you walk around a neighborhood in the city and it's sort of got some history of the, of the neighborhood intertwined in yeah. there and you're just solving clues um, with, you know, basically by using the environment and like walking to these different locations. Mm-hmm. So we're collaborating and we're working on a game which hopefully will be done in the spring. Um, and it's also going to have some augmented reality in it so i'm excited about that and yeah i mean i have a bunch of other kind of games in my head that i would like to work on and maybe even non-puzzle games but i can only do so many projects at a time so (laughs) they'll, they'll have to be on the back burner a little bit I think every single person listening knows exactly what you're talking about. It's like, I want to make all the things and I've only got 15 minutes a day to do it. And so how do you, how do you manage Yeah, that? exactly. It's the worst. Right. <laughs> well, cool. Well, hey, do you have any closing thoughts or advice for somebody who's maybe thinking about making one of these games or working on one right now? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to design one of these games, like every step of the way, you should be thinking about what kind of game you would want to yeah. play and if the puzzles and the components and you know the story that you're writing and all these things um always be thinking about whether you would actually enjoy doing it because if if you enjoy doing it then probably other people will um and you know really take your time to make adjustments and like make sure that it plays smoothly um it's it's not really gonna benefit anyone if you just do it too quickly and it's a bumpy puzzle is not a fun puzzle and um (laughs) and listen to your play testers when they tell you things are confusing or frustrating because that's that's kind of the whole point of play testing well awesome well Rita, really appreciate your time where can people find your games uh, they can go to getpostcurious.com. Awesome. Very cool. And again, really appreciate you coming on the show. And I uh, hope you uh, have a lot of fun creating more of these really awesome immersive puzzle games. So good luck with that. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?